going to talk about the seven things that Jesus said that got him in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. Now, when I say a lot of trouble, we know how much trouble Jesus got in. Because this three years of his ministry, as he says things and does things that just rub up against every single system, rub up against every single norm, people got madder and madder and madder to the point where they said to each other, he has to be arrested. We've got to get him out of here. And even to the point where he has to die. So we're going to talk about some things that are very serious in terms of what he said that got him in trouble and just made the entire community around him mad, particularly those in power. These very same things are what frees us today to live an amazing life in relationship with God, relationship at home, relationship with each other. So the things that got Jesus in trouble are the very things that make us truly alive today. And so we'll see how all that plays out. Now, what's the first thing Jesus said that got him in a lot of trouble? It is this word right here. Hello. Remember, we practiced. Jesus said, what? Oh, you totally blew that one. <laughs> Jesus said, what? There we go. All right. He said, hello. Well, what's wrong with hello? There's nothing wrong with hello. It seems polite, right? But he said hello to the wrong people. He said hello to the wrong people. And it got him in a lot of trouble. In fact, one person he said hello to, by the end of his ministry, the whole group of power brokers got together and said, he's got to be arrested. He, he can't do this anymore. He said hello to the wrong people. Now, if we're going to talk about how Jesus said hello to the wrong people, we've got to begin with the woman at the well. The woman at the well is among the most famous stories in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four books of the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament. John chapter 4, Jesus says hello and has a conversation with this woman at the well. And we're going to talk about why this person in particular was so shocking that Jesus would talk to her, that he would say hello to her, that he would have a conversation with her. Not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan. He was talking to the wrong person. Now, if you've been around church world uh, at all, you have probably heard a dozen sermons on the woman at the well. It is among the most famous um, passages in all of the scripture. In fact, we did a sermon about the woman at the well not too long ago. It was a matter of a few months ago. Pastor Krista did a great job, and she came at it from a beautiful angle, and we're coming at it from another beautiful angle because we can't spend enough time talking about the heart of Jesus, not just for this woman, but for all of us, particularly any of us who might feel that we have been rejected or we've been marginalized or we don't have a voice or we have made mistakes in our past that we can't seem to be free from. So let's talk about who she was. She was a Samaritan. A Samaritan is an ethnic group that has always been very small, a very small ethnic group, and their origins are 2,700 years ago. 2,700 years ago, this is 700 years before Jesus, the Assyrian army came in and wiped out the 10 northern tribes of Israel. So if this was a map, there's 10 northern tribes of Israel and two southern tribes of Israel. Assyria, right around 730-some BC, before Christ, the Assyrians came in and wiped out the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And then it was said they interbred with the northern tribes of Israel to create the Samaritan race. And they were very much despised because, of course, at the time, this is ancient civilization, it was all about ethnicity. It was all about the blood flowing through our veins. And if we had the same ethnicity and the same blood flowing through our, our veins, we would consider each other family. We would consider each other safe. We would protect each other. 
because we were the same race, the same ethnicity, and shared the same culture. Everybody else was an enemy out to get us, so we've got to stick together. And here's these Samaritans out there, not fully Assyrian, so, so rejected by the Assyrians, not fully Jewish, rejected by the, by the Jewish people, and there's this small group of people that were despised by everyone, everyone. 2,700 years ago, this group started. 700 years after they became a people group, an ethnic cultural people group, the Jews are still hating the Samaritans 700 years. I mean, that's, that's nearly three times longer than the U.S. has become a nation, still holding a grudge against these people for what happened 700 years prior. These grudges and these racial divisions go deep, deep, century upon century, and still today, today, 2,000 years after Jesus, the Samaritan people are still very much marginalized. In fact, I'm gonna show you a picture. Here's Joseph Cohen. Uh, this is uh, several years ago, not too long ago, but during the Second Intifada, there was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Joseph Cohen, 56 years old at the time, was driving home from work uh, from the city of Nablus in the Palestinian area. Uh, he's a Samaritan. Four, four sons there, driving home from work, and it happened to be a time of great tension and great violence between the Palestinians and, and, the, uh, and the Israelis. He drives down one area. There's two Palestinians there with weapons. They consider him and his car to be a threat. He wasn't. He was just driving home. They open fire on him, and he's struck, and he's bleeding. And he says, blood came out of me like water. And then he loses control of his car and goes into the next block, and the Israeli soldiers are there, and they consider him a threat, and they open fire on him, and he's shot again first by the Palestinians, then by the Israelis, and he lives. And he gave this quote during this interview. He says, there are probably few people in the world who have been shot both by Palestinians and Israelis. But he says, this is a short story of the Samaritan people, a people caught in the middle, always caught in the middle. Now, there are 844, roughly, Samaritans still alive today. There's still a people group caught in the middle. They don't have a real sense of home. They don't have a real sense of being accepted. And that was true 2,000 years ago when the Samaritan woman had this conversation with Jesus. Now, this whole interaction is in John chapter 4, which I believe is intentionally placed after John chapter 3, because that's how numbers work. <laughs> but John chapter 3, something happened that was really kind of intuitive and obvious. Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus very profound conversation about being born again, and John 3.16 kind of pops up in the world's most famous religious passage, right? Talking to Nicodemus. But that was obvious why he would talk to Nicodemus. He's a Jewish person talking to a Jewish person, and a man talking to a man, and a moral person talking to a moral person. It just all kind of made sense. So you read John chapter 3, and you think, oh, well, this makes total sense. Jesus says hello to Nicodemus. We call him Nick around here. They have a good conversation. Very profound. Wow, that's pretty cool. You flip the page to John chapter 4, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And he, if, if you knew anything about the culture, you would absolutely flip out. Jesus said, what? He's talking to a Samaritan woman. Let me give you the comparison. There's a lot of words here, but uh, we crammed them all in. In John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Jew, a man of good repute. We know his name. He's a righteous man, religious man, honored in society, educated, privileged, confident. He lives in Jerusalem, the city of David, the capital of the Jewish people, the holy, you know, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And he's a legalist, all about obeying the letter of God's law, obsessively obeying the letter of God's law. This guy has got it all pretty well together. Flip the page, John chapter 4. A Samaritan woman 
Samaritan, a despised race, a woman you wouldn't talk to in public, a person of disrepute. We don't even know her name, which I think is a way of saying nobody really cared about her name. She was labeled a sinner, an outcast, uneducated, underprivileged, insecure. She wasn't in Jerusalem. She was in the area of Samaria, and she worshiped on Mount Gerasim, and that was just looked down on. And she wasn't a legalist obeying the law, probably illiterate. Uh, she was a mystic. She wanted to experience God in certain ways through her community and through her religion. I think the reason why John chapter 4 is next to John chapter 3 isn't just because that's the way numbers work. It's because God is saying Jesus is about love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and welcoming everyone, everywhere. There couldn't be two more distinct people chapter next to chapter. And so we need to look at this story and, and we can mine the depths of this story for the rest of our lives because it is so profound, it is so radical, it is so powerful. Jesus said hello to this woman. Here's how it starts. John 4, 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. That would make no sense to you reading it. <clears throat> Jesus is doing whatever Jesus wants to do. He is the leader of this group. He is absolutely setting the course of whatever this group of people do. He's in charge. He's got no appointment he's late for. He doesn't have a business appointment. He goes where he wants. But it says he had to go through Samaria, meaning Jesus had to make a statement. He had to make a statement. And I don't think it's to this woman. I think he has to make a statement to the world. He has to make a statement to all of us. He had to go through this area to prove a point, to show how big God's heart is for all of us. Let me show you a map of the area. These are the three main roads leading from south to north. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem. They were going up to Galilee, which is where they spent the vast majority of their time. Every single time you go from Jerusalem to Galilee, if you are Jewish, you take the red road. This is the east road. You take the red road. It's just what you do. It's the pathway more traveled. It's a better road. It's a safer road. And you don't go through Samaria. Now, you might think of a certain city or a certain neighborhood that you just don't drive through. If you were driving through Southern California, you probably have a list of neighborhoods and freeways and stops that you just don't go through. You just don't, never have, never will. That's true of Jesus and his disciples. You just don't take the blue road. The blue road is the shorter road, it's the shortcut, but you just don't do it. There's Samaritans there and you just don't go through those neighborhoods. Jesus broke just about every cultural and religious norm to say a grace-filled hello to a woman who was considered nothing. He went through an area that was considered to be nothing. This forgotten area in the wilderness that nobody goes to and nobody cares about. They're Samaritans. They're the wrong race. We don't associate with those folks. So he took the road less traveled to show grace to the Samaritan people through this one woman. So let's detail this just a little bit here. Jesus did this intentionally. He had to go through Samaria. He did this intentionally. He's proving a point. Jesus intentionally shatters the race barrier. Jesus intentionally shatters the race barrier. John 4, 6 through 7. Jesus was tired from the long walk and sat wearily beside Jacob's well about noontime. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Hello, could you please give me a drink? Jesus said, What? You do not do that. She's a Samaritan. He's Jewish. Jewish people do not talk to Samaritans. Jewish people do not look at Samaritans. Jewish people consider Samaritans unclean by birth, unclean by blood. If the shadow of a Samaritan falls on your cloak, 
it is unclean and you are unclean and you have to go through cleansing ceremonies for a period of days. I'm not kidding you. Samaritans were considered to be dogs, half-breed dogs. In fact, it was very common that they would be considered, through pejorative terms, less than a stray dog. Because some of you are thinking, oh, you know, being called a dog, that's wonderful. My perfect little dog that cost me $12,000. I mean, dogs are awesome. That is not the way it was 2,000 years ago. They were just considered to be street rats, right? And they called Samaritans worse than the street rats, a half-breed street rat. I mean, this is difficult for us to hear, but it's just the way it was, not just with the Jews and Samaritans, but Samaritans and the Jews and every other race in the area. It's just the way it was, tribal people protecting themselves, clustering with themselves, and considering everybody else an enemy. It's just the way it was. Here's an interesting fact and a sad fact. We have amazing technology today, so we can do DNA testing and the Samaritan people have been DNA tested, as have the Jewish people, just to find it. what's the interesting parallels. Where are they different? And you know what science discovered? No differences. Zero. Same blood, same DNA, same heritage. There's no difference. For 2,700 years, these two ethnic groups have despised each other because of their differences, only to wake up in the 20th century and realized, oh, my bad. No differences. Same. Same. What a waste of time. What a colossal waste of time. Let's detail this even more here. Uh, I have 1,000 sheets of paper up here. Some of you were praying to the Lord. That better not be a sermon notes. (laughs) Got things to do today. 1,000 pieces of paper. If you were to print a single DNA code onto paper, one font, double-sided. Have you ever printed something, one font? It just, I, I did, a lot of ink. I didn't print this, but this is exactly 1,000 pieces of paper. If you were to print one DNA code um, in a cell of yours onto paper, one font, double-sided, 1,000 pages. If you take two most distinct human beings on earth, one from this hemisphere, one from this hemisphere, one from this ethnic group, one from this ethnic group, the most different physically, ethnically, racially, the difference in the DNA code will be less than one page. Less than one page. And of the one page difference in our DNA, with the two most distinct people on earth, a very small fraction of that has to do with, with what we call um, the physical ethnic differences between us color of skin, things like that. That's it. Of 1,000 sheets of paper, this is what has bothered us since the dawn of humankind. When Dr. Venter and the scientists at the National Institute of Health announced that they had decoded the human genome, they, in a very giddy way, announced there is only one race, and that is the human race. Because the differences are so insignificant. So what we're really talking about is not just the you know, DNA differences. What we're talking about when it comes to racial and ethnic differences is really cultural. I think, I think a lot of it is cultural, at least as much as it is visual, it's cultural. And so if one culture is around a, a different culture, there are things that make us uncomfortable. And you know, the way they talk is uncomfortable. The food that they eat is uncomfortable. Some of their mannerisms and, and how they gather in their family dynamics, there's just so many things that make us distinct culturally. And so what's bothered us since the dawn of humanity is not just how we're different 
visually and physically, but how we're different culturally. And we interpret that as a threat. We interpret difference as a threat. Now, we're improving in this, and I think we have a lot to celebrate in that. Um, the idea of, of racial tensions, racial, racial differences that create hatred and violence, we're becoming increasingly aware of how destructive that has been, not just in history, but now. And some of you I know are thinking, and I understand what you're thinking, is do we still have to talk about this 2,000 years after Jesus talked to the woman at the well? And I've heard this a lot, a lot, a lot, and I understand it, I'm sympathetic, is, is do we still have to talk about race relations and race, racism and racial reconciliation when we've come a long way? I mean, haven't we come a long way in 2,000 years? And what's the answer? Yes, absolutely. I mean, at least in, in a lot of our experience, there's parts of the world that are very much like it was 2,000 years ago, but in our experience, things are better than they were 2,000 years ago, for sure. Are things better than they were 200 years ago in America? What's the answer? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Are things racially better than they were 20 years in America, 20 years ago? I actually don't know. In fact, statistically, it's worse. Statistically, hate crimes are up. Social media, hate speech is up. Politics is race baiting. I don't wanna talk about this too much, but it's just, it's true. Politics, race baits. They try to get one race pitted against another because it's more money and more clicks and more votes, and that's just the way politics works. We pit each other um, against each other as enemies, and it's pulling our country apart. So I think, in large part, because of that, we are probably worse off than we were, at least statistically, we're worse off than we were 20 years ago. It can be reversed. It can be reversed when we get back to the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus with the woman at the well. So I think we still have to talk about this. There are still uh, divisions that need to be healed and reconciled. We have a racial reconciliation team that's meeting right now on the West Campus, right at this very moment, just seeing what we can do to build bridges. We still have to talk about this, right? Until we become the unified family that Jesus envisioned, that his early church envisioned, we still have some work to do. And it's work that's not angry work, it's positive work. It's like, where can we build bridges? Where can we make friendships? Where can we uh, say hello to people that we wouldn't normally say hello to? Jesus said hello to this Samaritan, and then they shared a drink. None of that stuff is culturally normal, right? And even today, there's this little residual where if we were to be honest, and if I was honest with myself, I just gravitate to people who have roughly my same story, my same ethnic story, my same socioeconomic story, my same professional story. You just kind of gravitate to same. It's, not, it's just normal, so let's not beat each other up over it. But let's say as Jesus was intentionally going through Samaria, maybe we need to int intentionally go on some roads that are less traveled for us. Say hello, share a drink, share a meal, make some friends. It's not easy work, but that's the work that really matters. In fact, later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, hey, listen, um, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I have some news for you. This message of God's grace, this message of God's love, this message of God's kingdom is gonna go beyond the Jews. It's gonna go to other nations. It's gonna go to other tribes, other people. It's gonna go to the Gentiles. They flipped out. The Jewish leaders flipped out and said, this man has to be arrested. The seven things that Jesus said that got him in a lot of trouble, hello to the wrong person, is one of them. Jesus also intentionally shattered not just the race barrier, but the gender barrier. barrier. Jesus intentionally shatters the gender barrier. Um, now, he's talking to a woman. And at the time, men simply did not talk to women in public. 
They didn't talk to women in public. They didn't even talk to their wives in public. So if you were 2,000 years ago in not only the area of Israel, but virtually every other populated area on earth, women knew their place behind the men. So as they would walk around, the women would be literally behind the men. And there would be no discussion. You could not talk to a woman in public. Men would talk to men. You would never talk to, to women. Women could talk to women, but men would never talk to women. And here Jesus is in Samaria, not just breaking the racial barriers, but breaking the gender barriers, talking to a woman. Now, here is the plight of a woman 2,000 years ago. They could not observe religious ceremonies. They could not participate. So if, if this was then, no women would be allowed in here. Women would have to be outside, outside. Um, or maybe on some scaffolding behind curtains. Women had few rights in public life. They had few rights in their home life. The patriarch, the man, was in charge, and he told his wife and he told his daughters exactly what they could and couldn't do. The father passed authority over the daughters. So if the firstborn was a daughter, if the first five were daughters, and your sixth was a son, everything went to your son. The Mishnah, these are uh, Jewish traditional teachings, taught that a woman was like a Gentile slave who could be obtained through intercourse, through money, or through court order. Women essentially were treated like property. Women cannot be counted in the membership of organizations or congregations. Women were not allowed to receive religious education. They could not be disciples of the rabbis. They did not have the right to divorce, and it just goes on and on and on and on. Women had virtually no human rights. So when Jesus said hello to the Samaritan woman, it was shocking. And not just shocking to the world around them, shocking to her. She was stunned. What are you doing, Jesus? The woman was shocked. She said, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? It's never happened. He broke the gender barriers. And Jesus did this all the time. He had women in his core group of followers and they're in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't just around the periphery, they were in the center. They were donors. They were making decisions together. They were dialoguing with Jesus, asking questions. Jesus partnered with them. He was breaking the gender barriers early on, early on. He told his, his, his church by example and then by the later teachings of the church, as women became deaconesses and women apostles, they became more and more prominent in their religious settings following Jesus. And so we might ask, hey, listen, do we still need to talk about, you know, gender 2,000 years after this? Do we still need to talk about it? Have we come a long ways in 2,000 years? What's the answer? Absolutely. Have we come a long way in the last 200 years? Absolutely. Have we come a long way in the last 20 years? I would say, yeah, we've made some pretty good progress. Um, women are now getting paid 84 cents of every dollar the man makes for equal job, equal work, equal qualifications, equal experience. That's still an injustice, but it's a lot better than it was. Women CEOs over the last 20 years have risen from 3% of Fortune 500 companies to now approaching 7% of Fortune 500 companies. That's still quite, quite low. And it goes to really what, what is the leadership pipeline civilization-wide, right? Societally, is, is there this pipeline for leadership? But the biggest disparity remains, just honestly, in the Christian church between men and women. Now, I'm sympathetic to, uh, you know, churches that may not allow women in certain leadership positions only because I know the verses. There's two key verses, and not to downplay those two key verses, but you look at context, um, which is very key. You look at particularly in, in Ephesus and Timothy, and I'm not going to get into any of that stuff. 
But there are two verses in the New Testament that you've got to wrestle with. I get it. I know them, memorized them, sympathetic to them. But the arc of what Jesus was doing to really liberate, not just racially, but liberate when it comes to gender, that there are no ceilings. There should be no pockets where women are not allowed. And if I can just speak a little bit plainly here, when we talk about, say, palace, or, or, uh, Afghanistan girls, Afghan girls not being allowed to go to school, you know, what does that do to us when we hear news stories that Afghan girls are not allowed to go to school? It's like we bristle at that. Still today, 30 million adult women cannot serve in certain roles in American Christian churches. And listen, I get it. I'm sympathetic. I was raised in that. I'm trying not to judge. I'm just saying maybe we need to think that, that there is still a long way to go specifically in the church where there are not only 30 million adult women who can't serve, but there are about 30 million girls growing up in an environment where they can't serve, where men can serve. They can't have the roles that men can have. It just, it just does something. Jesus intentionally broke the race barrier. He intentionally broke the gender barrier. Jesus also intentionally shattered the moralism barrier. The moralism barrier. Now, what do I mean by moralism? Moralism is defined as this. Moralism is being hyper-concerned about making moral judgments of the behavior of others. It's really convenient how that works, right? I'll make a moral judgment about you. Let's not talk about my problems at all, but I have a lot of fun pointing out your moral deficiencies, right? That's moralism that is rampant in religious cultures, all religious culture. And so this Samaritan woman had quite a problem. She had multiple strikes against her. She was the wrong race, a Samaritan, wrong gender, a woman, and she had a lot of moral failings. And so she carried an identity that comes across very clearly in John chapter four. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm a Samaritan. I'm not good enough. I'm a woman. I'm not good enough. I'm immoral. She was tagged as immoral. And here she is talking to Jesus. She knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows who Jesus is. He's miracle work, miracle worker, at the very least a prophet. And she says, you're a prophet, right? She knows who she's talking to. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm just going to make things really uncomfortable, but it's going to get better. Hang on. So here's what he says to this woman. You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Busted. She's like, ah, maybe I thought that would get past you. <laughs> you know, Jesus, I know who you are. You're at least a prophet, maybe savior, maybe son of God, miracle worker. And here you are a Jew talking to a Samaritan, a man talking to a woman, and you actually know my story. And, and you can just sort of imagine this woman. Everybody knows her story. It's this little tiny people group in this little tiny part of the wilderness. Everybody knows the story. Everybody knows her story, and so she's tagged. She's tagged as the uh, immoral woman, the immoral woman. So she's feeling the guilt of that and the shame of that. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus come alongside her and say, hey, listen, uh, yeah, busted. Here's what you have to do. You've got to rework all this and repent of this and restore this, and you've got to make all this right morally before I'll talk to you. You've got to get your moral life right with God before we can have a conversation. Is that what Jesus says? No. Here's the reality. Her moral life could not be undone. It was such a mess it could not be undone. Moralism says, hey, you're behaving wrong, and let's flip that around so you can behave right, and then once you behave right, then your relationship with God is restored. <laughs> I heard a pastor the other day say that. Like, repentance is the way to restore our relationship with God. It's like, the gospel would help. <laughs> it has nothing to do with our moralism. 
It has nothing to do with us. Jesus just tells this woman she's clean. Just tells her. Tells her. Verse 14. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. It's a gift, gift, gift. This bubbling water of God is just pouring into this woman's life. He's not giving her the whole list back to God, how to restore a broken relationship. He's just saying, you're loved. You're forgiven. If you would accept this forgiveness, accept this grace that I'm giving you, accept my hello. That's shocking, I know. Accept the fact that while you consider yourself to be a dog because other people have called you a dog, and then you do what people do who have a poor self-esteem, and you might make a bunch of bad choices and hurt a lot of people. That's just what happens. Hurt people hurt people, and she's living in that cycle, right? And Jesus says, you're loved. You're forgiven. Let the living water of God's grace just bubble all around you and know that you are clean you are clean. And God values you, Samaritan, as much as any other race on earth. And he values you, Samaritan, as a woman, as much as he values any man. He values you, Samaritan, with all of your guilt and shame that you carry that you know you can't reverse. He values you and considers you as perfect as he considered Nicodemus in John chapter three. All by grace. And if she would just receive that grace and believe that grace, Jesus says, that new life is gonna come up and you're no longer gonna consider yourself down here. You're gonna consider yourself who God sees you and God sees you as beautiful and God sees you as perfect. God sees you as a, as a rock star. God is proud of you and you just keep going. Keep going with dignity. Keep going with self-respect. Silence the voices around you that are saying negative things about you. Silence the voice in your own head that says you're guilty or you're shameful or God can never love you. Silence those voices. It's almost like Jesus looking right through her soul saying, believe me when I say that God's living water is for you. Jesus got in some trouble telling that to the Samaritan woman. He got in trouble hanging out with the tax collectors considered the worst of the worst hanging out with people that the religious leaders judged and rejected, accused of being a drunkard and friends of sinners. Here is the accusation that came Jesus' way in Luke chapter seven. The son of man feasts and drinks, so you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. That was the reputation of Jesus. He was so unconcerned with the waste of time that moralism is that he just blew right through it. If somebody was considered the worst of the worst, tax collector, prostitute, um, drunkard, Jesus is like, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you tonight. We're gonna have a feast with you tonight. I'm going to your house tonight. And the religious leaders pitched a fit and wanted him dead because of it. When he hung out with the tax collectors, they're like, we're done him hanging out with immoral people. He's got to go. The hellos that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman and countless people after her got him in a lot of trouble. But what was he doing? He was just, by example, showing us what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Saying hello to everyone, showing love to everyone, trying to avoid these racial biases that are in all of us and trying to push through those intentionally going through Samaria, trying to push through whatever you know, gender inequities there are still societally, trying to push through whatever, you know, moralism and moral judgment, particularly among religious people, how that divides 
and how that prevents us from building friendships and prevents us from showing God's grace. It basically says, if you're not perfect, you're not welcome here. Jesus pushed right through all of it by saying hello to everyone everywhere, showing them grace and showing them love. So what can we do to follow Jesus? Couple, you know, just quick thoughts. Where are some people in your neighborhood that you have kind of maybe unintentionally resisted building a relationship with? They're just different. They're in whatever way, they're just different and you don't naturally gravitate there. Knock on the door, make them, make them some food, right? Invite them over for dinner when you're comfortable. Little things like that. Say hello. Somebody at work, again, different than you, it's just not your normal lunch crew and this lunch table of everybody who's pretty much the same. Just invite new people to your table, right? Ask to go out to lunch with somebody who's very different from you, learn their story. Try to break down in your own head and in your own heart, whatever barriers that might be that, that causes you to feel certain judgments towards other people. Where are you looking at people or hearing about people and judging them in your heart? Break down those barriers. Let's follow in the footsteps of Jesus and say hello. We're gonna close in a song that uh, actually came up uh, from our tech director, David Tostado. He's a big arts guy and big music guy. And uh, Evan, he came to us with a song, what, about a month ago? Yeah, it was, it was a while ago. A while ago. And yeah. he says, hey, you guys ought to do this song. We're like, yeah, because we do like most of the songs David does. So he's got like, you know, he gets all the playlists. Oh, of course. Yeah, and it was funny because when we were doing this week, this uh, past Tuesday, we were kind of going through, what do we want to, yeah. you know, close with? And we had this song like nailed. We had it yeah. dialed. We we're like, okay. We're going to do this one. Yeah, let's, let's listen to that one more time. And then David was like, actually, remember that song uh, <laughs> that I played about a month ago? This would be perfect for this time. We're like, okay, yeah, play it. And he played it, and we were all like, that's, I, that's the it. one. <laughs> I nailed it. We're doing it. I mean, it was yeah. just like that. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah. that's what we're doing. Thank you, David Tostado. Love the guy. He's in his video cave back there doing all this stuff. That's right. But uh, such a great guy. And, and this song is just packed. Like, every phrase is just yeah. so cool. What is your favorite phrase? So right as the song starts off, the, the very first verse of this song says, you made me, and, and you like what you made. You made me, and you don't make mistakes. And to me, it's just like, that is... That is something we need to tell ourselves yeah. continuously all the time. You made me, and you're talking to God, and you're saying, you made me, and, and you like me. Yeah. You like what you made. You don't just love me. You like me. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Very it's cool. really, really awesome. Line. How about you, Dale? I really like the, um, it says, you take me just as I am, and you choose me all over again. Yeah. It's just really comforting to hear. That's right. cool. God likes us, and God chooses us. It's almost like this every day he chooses to be in a relationship with us, and, and he just wants us to know how, how you know, great he thinks we are. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. How about you, Sharon? I think my favorite is I don't have to prove anything and you make room at the table for me. That's cool. Yeah. Full welcoming embrace. Every phrase of the song is so cool. So just for the first couple of minutes of the song, just soak in the lyrics. And then right about the middle part, I was going to ask you to stand and you'll know the, the chorus by then. For me, my favorite line is the second verse that God is proud of us, proud yeah. of us. And that thought started seeping in my head a little while ago that he's actually proud. We're not, yeah. We haven't reached, attained a certain level of perfection, but he says you're trying. Yeah. You're making mistakes, you're trying to learn from the mistakes and keep moving forward. Yeah. And uh, so let's experience the song together and I'm gonna figure out how to get a thousand pieces of paper off the stage. <laughs> Good thing I'm so super strong. Say 
to prove anything There is room at your table for me I am the one I am the one you
Thank you, Alex. What a great way to end uh, an amazing time together.